Let's go ahead and open our Bibles, now that we're best friends, to 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14, and we will pick it up in verse 1 this morning. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 1. It says, In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand, that he executed his servants who had murdered his father the king. But the children of the murderer he did not execute according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, in which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, praise the Lord, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers, again, praise the Lord. But a person shall be put to death for his own sin. And he killed 10,000 Edomites in the valley of salt and took Selah by war and called its name Jachthiel to this day. Then... Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face one another in battle. And Jehoaz, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by it and trampled the thistle. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that, and stay at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not heed, therefore Jehoash, king of Israel, went out, he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel. Every man fled to his tent. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, the king of Judah, and returned, uh, to, and, and the son of Jehoash, the son of Amaziah, at Beth Shemesh. And he went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and the silver and the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries in the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Father, as we take a few minutes this morning to consider your word, I pray that you would be our teacher here today. Lord, I am fully aware that no one has come this morning to hear from me. We have come to hear from you. God, and so I pray that you would shepherd our heart. I pray that you would teach us what you want us to learn and that we would leave today, Lord, in a deeper fellowship with you because of your presence here this morning. Lord, that's a big ask, but you're a big God. And so we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Man, guest speakers, they just dump you in the middle of some passage and you're not familiar with the context. What in the world is going on here? 
Well, as we read, Amaziah is a king of Judah. At this time in Israeli history, it's two nations. It was one nation under King Saul, under King David, and King Solomon. But when Solomon's son Rehoboam took the throne, ten northern tribes headed to the north, and they aligned themselves under a guy by the name of Jeroboam. And then two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, followed the sons of David as their king. So Amaziah is a king there in the south. And he has a great victory over the people of Ammon. And yet he begins to be overconfident. He begins to get a little too big for his britches, as they say. And it causes him and his nation a whole lot of trouble. And as I was thinking about this story today, as I was thinking about this text, it reminded me of another event where overconfidence caused disaster. And in fact, the anniversary of that event is today. I'm speaking of the sinking of the Titanic. As most of you know, the Titanic was the largest ship on the sea in its day. And it was the most luxurious ship on the sea. And it was thought to be absolutely unsinkable. Unsinkable. They thought she was so unsinkable that a survivor reported that when she asked a crew member while the Titanic was still afloat, if this boat was really unsinkable, the crew member responded saying, not even God could sink the Titanic. Personally, I hope no crew member of a ship I'm ever on says something stupid like that. The reason they were so confident that not only God could sink the Titanic is the Titanic was designed with 16 watertight compartments below the waterline. And five of them had to be breached before the Titanic would ever be in trouble at all. But as most of you know the story, on April 14th, 1912, at 11.40 p.m., the Titanic hit an iceberg. It flooded five of the 16 watertight compartments, and in two and a half hours, on April 15th, 106 years ago today, that ship was on the bottom of the North Atlantic. And because they thought it was unsinkable, they only had half the amount of lifeboats needed there on the ship. The, 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 the cruise line, the crew thought, the worst we would ever need these lifeboats for is if this ship ever breaks down, we'll shuttle people to a working ship while the, the Titanic stays just dead in the water. It's never gonna go down. Because of this overconfidence, only 710 of the 2,200 people aboard the Titanic lived to see April 16th. It was overconfidence from the cruise line, overconfidence from the crew. Well, thinking of this story and whose anniversary is today, I think back to our Bible passage we just read. King Amaziah is full of overconfidence. As the chapter opens up, he starts out really well. He comes to the throne. He doesn't get rid of the high places, and neither do many of the kings, but he, he seems to love the Lord. He deals with the murderers of his father. Again, I know, I've just kind of dropped you in the middle of second kings here. What's just happened? Well, his father was a king named Joash. 
And Joash, if you remember the story, was a little boy when, when his father was, was killed in battle. And Joash's grandma killed all of his brothers because she wanted to be king. That's a terrible granny right there that's willing to kill all of her grandchildren so she can be queen. That's a bad granny. Well, Joash, Amaziah's father, was hidden by Jehoiada the high priest. And for seven years, Joash is poured into, loved on, shared from the word of God. At the ripe old age of seven, he becomes king over Judah. And as long as Jehoiada the priest was alive, Joash was a great king, fixing the temple, restoring its glory and its grandeur, getting Judah to serve the Lord. But the Bible tells us the minute that Jehoiada died, the minute he died, he lost his godly influence, King Joash did, and he started doing crazy stuff. He started taking gold from the temple and paying off foreign nations to be able to help him instead of relying on God. He turned to the worship of Baal, if you can imagine. And when Jehoiada's son, the priest that raised him son, confronted him on it, he had him killed. He killed the son of the man who raised him in the Lord. Well, the people of Jerusalem had enough of this guy, so they killed him and put his son... Amaziah on the throne. Well, when Amaziah, the Bible tells us, gets control of the kingdom, he puts those men to death, but not with spite, not with vengeance. He does it away the way the word of God said, meaning he doesn't kill their children and grandchildren, which was common in the day. No, instead, he just says, hey, you killed a man, you have to die. That's what the Bible says. And so he's following the Lord at first, Amaziah is. He's trying to do things God's way, but then he has this battle against Edom. And the Bible tells us that he's, in, a, in, a, in an expanded when Chronicles gives us more information, that he was outnumbered. He didn't know how he was going to win this battle. And God gave him, him victory over the Edomites. But as he comes home, he starts feeling his oats, so to speak. He starts thinking he is the man. And so he contacts Jehoash in the north. Remember, two countries in that day. Ten tribes in the north, Judah and Benjamin in the south called Judah. And he contacts the king in Israel and says, let's go to battle, let's fight. And we don't know why. Maybe because he wanted to unite the nation under one king like it was under his great, 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 great grandfather David. Maybe he just liked war. We don't know why. But he invites Jehoash to come and fight. And as we read this morning in 2 Kings 14, Jehoash says, let me tell you a little story, King Amaziah. There was this thistle, this little thorn bush. And this little thorn bush came to this great cedar of Lebanon. You think, you know who Jehoash thinks he is in the story. And he says, can I have your daughter as wife for my son? And then as they're having this conversation, a wild beast just steps on the thistle and he's gone. And the point is this, Amaziah, you're so insignificant. A dog might step on you and you're going to be gone. I'm not going to give you my daughter as, as a wife for your son, and I'm certainly not going to go to battle for you. That would be terrible. He says, you've enjoyed your victory of Edom. Stay home and do not meddle, is what he tells him. Do not get involved. And Amaziah, who, who doesn't realize what he's up against. Yes, Israel in the north had five times the population of Judah in the south. Five times the size of army. But beyond that, God had said 
that the kings of Judah were not to invade the kings of the north. So he's moving away from what God says. And Jehoash tells him, why should you meddle, verse 10, with trouble so that you should fall? And I love how the King James puts it. Why should you meddle to your own hurt? Now, church, we understand this word meddle here, it's not the same definition that you and I use it in our day and age. When you and I use the word meddle, we think of someone doing something or getting involved where he shouldn't. You know, we think of maybe mother-in-law. Now, not any of you mother-in-laws or your mother-in-law, but mother-in-laws from other churches. But we think of mother-in-laws and we think of her saying, we think of the mother-in-law saying, that's not how my son likes his baked potatoes. That's not how he likes his shirts ironed. Oh, meddling, meddling. Or we think of a father-in-law who pulls his son-in-law aside and says, you're not making enough money to support my daughter. Oh, meddling, meddling, getting involved where you shouldn't. And that's the the modern definition. But the biblical definition of the Hebrew word garah means to have unfounded confidence. To have unfounded confidence, especially in moving away from the word of God. You see, Amaziah defeated Edom. But now he's facing an army five times his size and an army God himself told him not to invade. And yet Amaziah is at this point in his life where he thinks, I don't need to listen to the word of God. I don't need to listen to what God is saying. I can do my own thing. I can go my own way. I am undefeatable. And it'll bring about disastrous consequences in his life. And I really felt the Lord wanted us today to consider this because we have the ability to do the same thing. We can move away from the will of God in our lives by saying, I can handle this. God's rules don't apply to me. I am unsinkable. I am undefeatable. Lord, I know what you're saying, but I have this one. No, you are meddling You are showing an overconfidence in yourself in moving away from the declared word of God and it'll always lead to disaster. Church, there is this dark part in each of our hearts, every one of us, myself included, where I think in some areas, God's word just doesn't apply to me. I think of what God told the disciples. Jesus there, the night before he was crucified, he said, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. And Peter, good old Peter. Peter answered and said, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Oh, really, Peter? You're going to become the poster child for stumbling that night. But he just thinks, God, your word doesn't apply to me. And maybe for you, how it works out is maybe for you, it's a relationship you're contemplating. It's a relationship with someone who is not a Christian, not a believer. You know what the word says. Paul writes to the Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And you know God's heart. That doesn't mean we don't love the people in the world. We don't share Jesus with the people in the world. We're a light to people in the world. Of course, that's exactly how we're supposed to be. That's how Jesus was. 
But God is trying to get you to see you're different than those in the world. And to enter into something like marriage, it's a danger. But some of us say, oh, that might be a danger for you, Pastor Jason. That might be a danger for some weak-minded people. But I've been dating non-believers for years. And it's never affected my Christianity. So I'm going to keep going down this road no matter what the Bible says. Oh, you are meddling to your own hurt. Maybe for you it's substances. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, wrote this. Wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Maybe you see that and you say, maybe for you again, Pastor Jason, but I'm at my best with a few too many. I don't know what you're saying. I'm just making up what you're saying so I can say whatever I want you to say. Or maybe it's just marijuana. It's legal now, Pastor. It's legal. It grows in the ground. It's from the Lord. I can just take it. It helps me function. Listen, you are meddling to your own hurt. Eventually, substances will grab a hold of you and not let go till it destroys everything you love. Maybe for you, it's a little flirting at work. Oh, what's the harm in that? We just talk. We're just friends Nothing will ever happen. Nothing has ever happened with a little flirting at work. Oh boy. You're meddling to your own hurt. Maybe for you it's bitterness and unforgiveness. The word of God is clear to you. It says in Ephesians 4, Let all bitterness, wrath, clamor, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you. Put it away from you. And you might say, I know the word says that, but you don't know what he did to me. You don't know how justified my bitterness is, precious one. I'm not saying your bitterness isn't justified. I'm not saying you weren't rightfully hurt and you have the right to be angry. I'm saying the God who loves you says you need to put that bitterness off. You need to take that anger to the cross and let the blood of Jesus cleanse you. Oh, but I've been dealing with it for years and it's never affected me. You are meddling to your own hurt. Maybe for you it's lust. Paul says to the Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. Paul says, this is God's will for you. God's will for you is that you would be sanctified. What does that mean? That you would be like Jesus. It's God's will for you that holiness and purity would be developed in you. Oh, but it's just pictures. It's just a website. Nobody is getting hurt. There's where you're wrong. You're meddling to your own hurt. It is you that is being affected. It is your marriage or your future marriage that is being effective. 
And every time that we meddle to our own hurt, the same disastrous consequences that we see in Amaziah's life, we start to see developed in our own life. What happened in Amaziah's life? We'll look again at verse 10 of 2 Kings chapter 14. In verse 10, Jehoahash is reminding him not to get involved. Verse 10, For you have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that, and stay at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you should fall? Or why do you meddle to your own hurt? You and Judah with you. But Amaziah would not heed. Therefore Jehoash, king of Israel, went out, he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Azariah, at Beth Shemesh. And he went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and the silver and all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Amaziah thinks, I'm going to defeat the king of Israel. I'm, God told me not to do it. God told me not to go that way, but I just beat Edom. I know I can beat him. The word of God be put aside in my heart. And the king of Israel, not even a godly man, says, don't meddle to your own hurt. What are you doing? But Amaziah just won't listen. He won't listen to the warning of the Lord. He won't listen to this, this ungodly king that's trying to give him advice. He goes to battle and the two of them meet at Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh is 15 miles west of Jerusalem on the, on the plain that heads down to the Mediterranean Sea. And some very significant things have happened in biblical history at this spot. We'll get to one other before we're done in just a few minutes. But these two kings meet here. Amaziah thinking, the word of God doesn't apply to me. I don't need to listen to this. And he is soundly defeated at Beth Shemesh. Jehoash defeats Amaziah, chases him back to Jerusalem where he destroys 400 cubits or 600 feet of the wall that protected Jerusalem, verse 13 tells us. And I want you to see that because when we, when I, when you, when all of us, because we do, meddle to our own hurt, get involved where God himself has said, don't be involved in this, son. I love you too much. Don't go after this, daughter. I care about you too much. Oh, we think it doesn't apply to me. We do it anyways. What happens in our life? Same thing that happened in Amaziah's life. Number one, our defenses are diminished. Our defenses are diminished. Write this down, pray it in, think it through. I know you're a well-taught congregation, so whatever you do, when Pastor Ted says something that's noteworthy, do that. Pray it in, write it down, think it through. You do that, right? Don't tell, don't, don't tell me if you don't. I'll tell him. Anyways, whatever you do, write it down, think it through, pray it in. 
Number one, what happens is there's a decrease in our defenses. Jerusalem has some natural defenses, especially for that day and age. In, in the modern world with, with fighter jets and missiles, walls around a city aren't that helpful, as you know. But in biblical times, a big wall was really helpful because it kept an invading army out, at least for a season. Jerusalem has some natural defenses. To its east, it has the Kidron Valley. Some of you have been to Israel. You've seen that. It's a deep valley to the east of the city of Jerusalem. To the south and winding to the west is the Hinnom Valley. And it's another deep valley that provides natural defenses. But to the north, Israel is vulnerable. And so Jerusalemites for years have put large walls just there to the north of the city. They surround the whole thing, but they're really tall there at the north. And it's at that gate, the Ephraim gate, where King Jehoash knocks down 600 feet of the wall. So now any army can come in. And I want you to see this. I want you to know this because when we start to meddle with things we shouldn't be meddling with, the first thing that happens is our defense against sin begins to fall. All of us have natural defenses against sin. There are just some sins that aren't that tempting to you. You saw it abused by a father, a mother, a grandfather, and you are not interested in doing what they did. You saw the effects. But all of us, Myself, you, all of us have areas where we are vulnerable to certain sins. And if you are wise, you have some defenses in those areas where you're vulnerable. If you're vulnerable in substances, then there's, there's just stuff you know you can't drink, there's things you can't smoke, and there's places you can't go. It's a wall of defense to you. If, you're, if you're, your struggle is bitterness, there are certain people you just can't be around. You can't be around them. You can't spend time thinking and meditating on them. It's a wall of defense for you. If your struggle is lust, I hope that you have guards on your iPhone, on your, on your iPad, on your computer at home. And if you do, it's a wall of defense. But what happens as we start to meddle is we start to push those walls back. We say, well, I've, I've been sober for 20 years, so now I can go to that bar again, not to drink myself, but to hang out with my friends. And we push that wall back a little bit. Oh, I'm now mature in the Lord, so I can watch that racy show that used to stumble me. And we push our defenses back a little bit. But we keep pushing them and pushing them and pushing them, and eventually the enemy crumbles them before our face. And he walks right into our heart to stumble us, to get us to fall. Our defenses are diminished just like Amaziah and Jerusalem's defenses were diminished. Secondly, write it down, pray it in, think it through. We see that sometimes our worship is diminished. It was certainly true in Amaziah's life. In Jerusalem's life, verse 14 tells us that King Jehoash goes into the temple And takes the instruments they used to use to worship with. They used to use to relate to the Lord. And he took them away. He diminished their worship. And I mention it to you because when you and I start to meddle where we shouldn't be meddling. When we start to go down roads that God's word has told us to avoid. What happens? We fall. We sin. And what happens next? Condemnation. 
And as a pastor for almost 20 years now, let me tell you, condemnation does more to hinder people's worship than almost anything else. You know, you've experienced it. You come to church, the worship starts, you want to sing, but then you remember, oh, what I did. What am I doing singing this song? And of course, the enemy's right there next to you. Yeah. Oh, lifting your hands in worship, huh? You weren't lifting your hands in worship last night. Oh. And we feel condemned. And our worship in our heart is diminished. It, it's a good indicator something is wrong. In fact, I think it's a great barometer in our lives. What is your worship life like? I didn't ask whether you like the worship. I asked, what is your worship like? What is your worship life like? Because you know, you're well taught, worship is beyond what we do on a Sunday morning. It's beyond singing songs from this platform. Worship is a lifestyle. And there's so many great opportunities when you're driving around your car to just for a minute, turn off some of that other stuff. And to spend time worshiping the Lord, to get 30 minutes to go to the park and just spend time with the Lord. And when God begins to prompt you and it's time to worship, whether it's here or it's somewhere out there, what happens in your heart? Do you run to worship? Or do you find that your heart is a thousand miles away? Do you find that you're plotting your schedule for the rest of the week? If that is so, maybe, maybe worship has been diminished in your heart because you have been meddling to your own hurt. When we meddle to our own hurt, our, our defenses are broken down. We're diminished in worship. And thirdly and finally, our freedom is destroyed. In verse 14 of chapter 14, you can look down and see it. Not only did he take the instruments of worship, but Jehoash also took these men who started the day as free men, who started the day thinking, maybe I will unite the nation under one. And now they are servants to the nation of Israel. And I want you to see that because so often sin and rebellion starts when we think, man, I just need a break. All, this, all these spiritual disciplines are oppressive. They're really hindering my joy. No, they're not. Yes, they are. So if I take it, just a little venture down this road that God didn't tell me to, oh, it'll be so fulfilling. No, it won't. Paul spoke to the church of Corinth. They struggle with similar thoughts. They were a very carnal church. I'm not saying you are. Other people are. Corinth was, for sure. And he writes them and says this, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I, but all things do not edify. That word means to build up. He also says to them, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Do you hear what Paul is saying to this Corinthian church? All things are lawful. I can do whatever I want. And if I truly believe in Jesus and his blood clearly covers my heart, I'm still going to heaven. He still loves me. I can do a bunch of stuff and God will still love me. I can do a bunch of stuff and I will still go to heaven. 
but so many things that I justify to myself and I tell myself they're okay and I meddle away and I have an overconfidence that I don't have to listen to the word of God. I meddle and it's not the love of God that's diminished. It's not my salvation that's in jeopardy, but it is our freedom. It is our freedom we have in Christ to walk free from sin, to walk free from rebellion and its effects in our heart and life. It is our freedom that's diminished. And if you in any way feel like I'm describing you today, where you feel like I'm just meddling and my defenses are crumbling and my worship isn't what it was and and I just seem to find myself in bondages I never wanted to be in, if you feel that way, I want to direct your attention to one more Bible story before we go our way. It also happened at Beth Shemesh, the same place where this battle took place. Sometimes we feel, Lord, where are you? I used to be so close to you. There used to be such intimacy, but now... It just seems like you're a million miles away. Do you know you're not the only believers in God that have felt that way in the history of the world? (laughs) You're not. Israel certainly felt that way in 1 Samuel chapter 6. They had lost the ark of God. Can you imagine? They lost the ark of God. They brought it out with them to battle, thinking it would be a good luck charm. They obviously got a pre-release copy of, of, of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because they thought, that was a joke, sorry, it wasn't a very good one, but apparently. But, but they thought maybe if I lift up the, oh, who knows what they thought. But they bring the ark out as a, as, a, as a lucky omen. But it wasn't about the ark, it was about their hearts not being right with God. And so they were defeated by the Philistines, and the Philistines took the ark with them. And the Philistines are thinking to themselves, not only did we defeat Israel, we defeated their God. God was not nervous, though. They bring the ark into their temple of their God, their God Dagon. The Philistines worship this half fish, half man God. It's weird what we'll worship if we don't worship God. They're worshiping a merman. That's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. Let's admit it. I know we drink a lot of Starbucks, but that's kind of weird that they're worshiping a merman. So, so they have this statue of Dagon and they bring the ark in and you, most of you know the story. The next day they go in and, and Dagon is prostrate like in a worship position before the ark and they lift their god back up if if your god needs your help to he's fallen and he can't get up not a good god to worship they put him back up the next day they come in he's broken into pieces before the ark of god their god dagon so they walk in and they think dagon it this just keeps happening and they and they get all the the pieces and they they, they realize Our gods don't get along. And so they put the ark of God and send it back to Jerusalem. They put it on a cart and they send it back to Jerusalem. So the men of Beth Shemesh, God, where are you? God, we lost you. It seems so long since there's been intimacy in your presence in our lives. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 6, now the people of Beth Shemesh were were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley and they lifted up their eyes and they saw the ark and they rejoiced to see it. So they split the wood of the cart and offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day. Before we go, this is so key. 
they sensed the presence of God wasn't with them. They then lifted up their eyes and they saw the presence of God. If you feel like God is distant from you today, let me tell you, he's not distant from you today. He's closer than you know. He is here and he wants to wrap his arms around you this morning. And where the enemy wants you to think, there's some battle I have to win. I've got to deal with this issue and that issue before God will ever be close to me again. That is rubbish. Jesus has already won the war. He has already been victorious. You need to get your eyes off of you, off of your failures, and onto the Lord. And realize he loves you. He's for you. And he wants there to be intimacy between you and he again. Lift up your eyes. That's not all that they did though. They offered a sin offering and a burn offering. A sin offering was repentance. A burn offering was an offering of dedication. We also, listen, the victory's been won. The price has been paid. But there needs to be a sin offering, if you will, where you and I come before the Lord and say, God, I have been meddling in my own hurt. I have been doing my own thing and going my own way. And God, I want to confess that to you today. And I want to repent. Isaiah says, God's arms aren't short that he can't wrap them around you. His ears aren't deaf that he, he can't hear your cries. But what is it? What's the separation? He says, it's your sin that separates you and me. And friend, we don't have to win a war. We don't have to offer a goat. Our Jesus has already died for our sins. And what a great time this morning as we come to the table of communion and we take the cup and we take the bread, not just as a, as a rote religious ceremony, but we say, God, forgive me my sin. Forgive this road I've been walking down and he wants to forgive you, friends. A sin offering and then maybe a burn offering. A burn offering is where they took a bull and they offered every bit of it to the Lord. It was different from all the other offerings where the priest would normally take a portion of the sin offering, a portion of the peace offering you would take apart and it was like this fellowship and offering and worship. The burn offering was none of that. It was completely consumed on the altar. And what the offerer was saying was, like this bull is completely yours. So God, I want to be completely yours. And how great it is for you and I to get our eyes off of the stuff we think is going to fulfill us, the stuff we think is going to set us free, onto the Lord that's truly going to fulfill us, offering up a sin offering, if you will. Father, I repent for the things I've been meddling in. I repent for the stuff I've been doing. And Lord, a burnt offering as well. Here I am. Take every part of me. Take every issue of my heart. Take every desire I have. I want it all consumed for your glory. If you do that today, if you feel that's necessary for you today, you know what you're going to find? You're not going to find a God that's angry and upset at you. You're going to find a God that loves you, that isn't condemning you, that wants to wrap his arms around you again and say, are you tired of meddling to your own hurt? Yes. 
good. Let's start walking together again. Let's start fellowshipping together again. Amen? Amen.